Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 14. That's page 901, I believe, in the chair Bibles, 901. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 15. Read with me, starting John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father. And me in you and I in you. And you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes this morning to understand and behold glorious things in your word. Help us to understand our desperate condition apart from Christ and to worship and adore you because we have been adopted. We've been rescued. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are 153 million orphans in our world today. Less than 250,000 of them will be adopted into permanent homes. So that's less than 1% of all orphan children who will experience the permanence of adoption through their childhood years. 48 million of these orphan children can be found in sub-Saharan Africa. 31 million can be found in East Asia and the Pacific. 6 million in the Middle East. 9.4 million in Latin America and the Caribbean. That's our world. But what about the United States? More than 800,000 children pass through our country's foster care system each year. There are currently... 500,000 children in our foster care system right now. 129,000 of those children are waiting to be adopted right now. What about our state? In Illinois, there are about 18,000 children living in out-of-home care. That means they could be living with foster parents, relatives, or institutionalized group homes. Most of these children are currently waiting to be adopted And most of them never will be. Now, we've all heard statistics like this before, right? And it makes sense that since today is Orphan Sunday, the Sunday that Christians have set aside to to pray and to think about orphans and and to to really um, raise awareness for the plight of orphans across the the world, it makes sense um, that I'm preaching a message on orphan care and that I would overwhelm you with really sad statistics about orphans all over the world. But the reason I begin this way is not to make you feel guilty or to lead you to despair. The reason I share those numbers with you today is twofold. First,
first because I want to astound you with the truth of the gospel. I want you to feel the weight of your own helpless condition, your own sad condition, the condition you were in before Christ. You were an orphan. And then I want us to fall to our knees in worship and adoration because we've been rescued. We were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. We've been adopted into God's family, even though we have done nothing to deserve it. We've been gathered together to share in God's blessing. Now we have a family when once we didn't. I want us to feel that this morning. And hopefully as we look at John 14, we'll see that. But there's another reason I read those statistics. I want us to understand something about our world. The world that we live in hates children. Let me say that again. The world we live in hates children. Satan hates children. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, they sinned against him. They thought they knew what was best for themselves, and so they rejected God and his will for them, and they sought to live their lives without him. This led to death and separation, and God removed them from the Garden of Eden, right? We know the story. But in the midst of God's judgment, in Genesis 3.15, we are told that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. There will be this conflict, this battle, this violence between the children of Eve and the children of the devil. And this conflict is being played out in our own day. It's all around us. We see this war being raged all around us in our culture. We are constantly fed lies about children and what it means to care for them. What are some of these lies? Well, children are to be avoided at all costs. To become pregnant, when you don't want to become pregnant in our world, is considered a grave injustice. Therefore, any and all means that we can take to prevent or terminate pregnancy must be open and available to anyone who wants them. And not only should those options be available, they should be available free of charge. So we now live in a country where all men are created equal and are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is, unless those men and women are unborn and unwanted. Then not only is it okay to kill them, it's actually considered progress. Over 50 million babies have been aborted since 1973 in America alone. Many children in the statistics I read were never wanted by their parents. They have simply become a nuisance, getting in the way of whatever their parents desire, whether that be freedom, drugs, alcohol, or some other addiction. That's a lie that we're told. The children just get in the way. But we don't even have to look at these sort of what we, what we would probably consider extreme, horrific examples. Just think about the way that children are hated in our own middle class mindsets. The raising of children is considered to be an unnecessary burden. 
something that must take a back seat to my career, my personal life goals, what I really want to do with my life. It comes across even in the way we talk about having children. Oh, we want children. We just want to wait until this certain undetermined point in time. Or we want to wait until we are ready. Or, this is one of my favorites, we want to enjoy our marriage before we start having kids. Because once those kids start, there is no more enjoyment. (laughs) That's what's implied there. Children are a burden, something to be avoided. Or sometimes children are portrayed as an accessory to our lives. Like a coach handbag or a pair of diamond earrings, right? Something to be toted alongside me because they're cute and they bring me attention. Perhaps children become the vehicle for all our hopes and dreams. Dr. Russell Moore puts it this way. The demonic rulers of the age hate orphans because they hate babies. And they have, from Pharaoh to Molech to Herod to the divorce culture to malaria and HIV, they hate foster care and orphan advocacy because these actions are icons of the gospel's eternal reality. Our enemies would prefer that we find our identity and our inheritance in what we can see and verify as ours, the flesh, rather than according to the veiled rhythms of the Spirit, Orphan care isn't charity, it's spiritual warfare. Yes, sometimes children are avoided and murdered. Sometimes children are used. Either way, children are rarely truly loved. And that war that began at the gate of of the Garden of Eden continues into our own day. But today... I want us to see that because we have a heavenly father who cares for us, we are called to care for the fatherless. Because we have a heavenly father who cares for us, we are called to care for the fatherless. Look with me in John chapter 14. Now, We have to understand what's happening in John chapter 14 or what has happened in the life of Christ and in his ministry with his disciples. They have just completed the Last Supper. In chapter 13, Jesus identifies Judas as the one who will betray him and sends him out to fulfill his task. After Judas leaves, Jesus begins explaining to the rest of the disciples that he is about to leave them. He's about to depart. They don't get it. They don't understand this until after it happens. But he's, gonna, he's telling them this anyway. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus addresses the disciples as little children. We're going to see that Jesus did not use this term by accident. It is only used to describe the disciples here in John's gospel, which makes it significant. Jesus considered the disciples to be his own children, He has taken responsibility for them over the past three years. And we are told earlier in John that he loved them to the end. When we get to chapter 14, Jesus gets even more explicit with his fatherly kind of language. He tells them that he will soon be going to his father. He is going there to prepare a place for his disciples. When he does, he will come back for them so that where he is... They can be there also. 
Thomas questions Jesus by asking, you're saying that we will be with you, but how do we know the way? How are we going to get to wherever it is that you're going? Jesus replies with his famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas begs, Lord, show us the Father. Because Jesus says, you can't get to the Father unless you come through me. Thomas says, okay, show us the Father. I mean, you can't get much more of, a, of an explicit question than that. We want to see the Father. Show us God. Jesus replies, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So again, Jesus clearly considers the disciples to be his own children under his care, but he's also directing their minds and their hearts toward his own heavenly Father. This relationship of Jesus to his Father throughout the Gospel of John especially is so close, and the ministry of the Father and the ministry of Jesus is so intertwined and so connected that Jesus then tells his disciples that whatever you ask in my name... I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus wants his followers to know that when we ask something in his name, he answers our prayers so that the Father might be glorified. So in Jesus, we have access to the Father. This idea is going to become more important later on in our passage. Then we come to verse 15. Jesus makes a crucial move. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this was a bold statement. Jesus was essentially putting himself in the place of the Old Testament God of Israel here. His statement about keeping commandments would have triggered Old Testament teaching in his disciples' minds. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells Israel, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. When Jesus tells his disciples that they prove their love for him by keeping his commandments, Jesus is even more explicitly equating himself with the ministry with that of the Father. He's taking Old Testament language that only applied to the God of Israel, and he's applying it to himself and his own ministry. Jesus' authority was unique, and for a rabbi to make this claim would have been scandalous. So not only is Jesus a father to his disciples, he is a father who carries with him the authority of God. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to send them another helper to be with them forever. This helper is the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 16, Jesus is going to explain more about who the Holy Spirit is and what kind of work he will do. But here we are told that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because the world does not see him or know him. But the disciples do know him because he has been with them and will be in them. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus telling his disciples here? What am I getting at? He's giving them comfort, remember? He's about to leave. He's about to be crucified. He knows what's about to transpire. He knows that the disciples' faith is going to be rocked to the core. 
He knows he's about to be betrayed and crucified. He knows the disciples are about to abandon him. He knows Peter is about to deny him. But he wants them to know that he will be sending the Holy Spirit to help them. Most basically, he is being a good father. He knows the dangers and the fears and the anxiety of his children. He knows what they are about to experience, and he wants them to be comforted in the midst of it. Jesus treated his disciples like his own children, not in a pandering, condescending kind of way, but in a caring, life-preserving, life-giving way. Psalm 103 tells us that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Jesus, in, in this passage, is remembering that his disciples were dust. He knew they were weak and frail and had little faith. So he is doing what every good father does. He is preparing them for his departure. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, writes this. In the absence of our Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples were like children deprived of their parents. During the three years in which he had been with them, he had solved all their difficulties, borne all their burdens, and supplied all their needs. Whenever a case was too hard or too heavy for them, they took it to him. When their enemies well nigh overcame them, Jesus came to the rescue and turned the tide of battle. They were all, they were all happy and safe enough while their master was with them. He walked in their midst like a father amid a large family of children, making all the household glad. But now he was about to be taken from them by a humiliating death. And they might well feel that they would be like little children, deprived of their natural and beloved protector. Our Savior knew the fear that was in their hearts, and before they could express it, he removed it by saying, you shall not be left alone in this wild and deserted world. Jesus was a father to his disciples. He cared for his disciples in a fatherly way. This is something that we do with our own children. The first time Nella had a sleepover at Nana's house, I remember this, we didn't just drop her off with Nana and say, all right, see you later, have fun. We probably could have because she was tot- she's really social and totally fine, but, but we didn't do that. We prepared her, right? We prepared her well in advance for what was going to happen. You're going to Nana's. Here's what you need to do to prepare. She was really excited for days and days about having a sleepover at Nana's. And so we talked about it. We talked about what she was going to do, how she would behave, all of this. We prepared her well in advance. Because no matter how social or comfortable a child is around someone, there is going to be a level of fear when mom and dad are no longer around. Jesus was a father to his disciples. Reading on in verse 18, Jesus is not just going to send the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, he tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. Now, this is really the heart of my message today, this one verse, this one passage. Why does Jesus use this term orphan here? That's the question that I asked. Why orphan? It's the only time this word is used in John's gospel. This word also means desolate, deserted, or comfortless. There must be a reason why Jesus chose this word rather than another. What is it about Jesus leaving that would cause the disciples to become desolate or deserted or orphaned? Think about what the disciples' lives have been like throughout the ministry of Jesus. As we read the Gospels, we get this mental image that the disciples really are like little children. They're like lost puppies following Jesus around. They misunderstand and apply Jesus' words and misapply Jesus' words all over the place. Jesus explicitly tells them he's going to die and be raised from the dead at least three times before it happens, but they don't believe it until it happens. They see Jesus perform miracle after miracle, sign after sign, and they still question his identity. After Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, they feared for their lives when Jesus came walking out to them on the water. Mark tells us they were astounded for they did not understand the loaves and their hearts were hardened. They tremble in fear of storms and demons and men who would seek to persecute them. After Jesus calms the storm, he asks, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They fight among themselves about who will be the greatest, who will get to sit at Jesus' side in heaven. They overreach and mishandle the authority that Christ does entrust to them. Jesus, we saw a guy casting out a demon in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't with us. Jesus says, don't stop him. If anyone's not against us, he's for us. After this... After this passage in John, the three disciples closest to Jesus will fall asleep at the moment Christ needs them the most, and Peter will deny him on his way to the cross. They really were like little children. Now think about how lost the disciples were about to feel. Think about how much their lives were about to change with the crucifixion of Christ. They had given up their livelihood for the past three years to follow Christ, to dedicate their lives to this man and his teaching, and he's about to be humiliated on the cross. What are they going to do? What are they going to think? It was all for nothing. What was the point They sought to please Christ. They looked to him for food, for comfort, for deliverance, safety, and security. When Jesus equates his ministry to the ministry of his heavenly father, that is not meant to be hyperbolic or metaphorical. He was their earthly father and their spiritual father. He was the one that they looked to. I have seen... The fear and anxiety overtake my own children a few times. There are those times in a crowd of people when Silas or Ezra look up 
and they realize the person they are standing next to, the person they thought was daddy, is actually a total stranger. And you can see, I've seen this happen, you see the fear set in. And immediately their eyes just start darting, looking around, searching frantically for some familiar face. Or those times in Target when they get distracted by looking at toys and then realize that mom and dad have moved on to the next aisle. And we hear them frantically calling out for us. Or, and this happened one time, I'm giving myself Daddy of the Year award here. When I look up at Target and Nella is walking up to me in the aisle with tears in her eyes. And I ask her, well, what's wrong? And she says, I couldn't find you. I couldn't find you. It doesn't really happen anymore, but it happened. Um, it breaks your heart. Children, as much as they pretend like they are adults, they are helpless without their parents. Without their father, the disciples would be lost. To whom would they turn for comfort, safety, and security? For fatherly care and compassion. You see, Jesus uses the word orphan here for good reason. Without him, the disciples would be left comfortless. You know, Kelly and I are about six weeks into our foster care training. So every, more, every Saturday morning for the past six weeks, we've attended classes that are supposed to teach us what we need to know about how to be effective foster parents. One of the main components of this training is what I call empathy training. Okay, and I'm not like, I don't want to bash the training that we're going to or anything like that. It's just, this is kind of what a lot of the training consists of, empathy training. We spend a lot of our time in these classes trying to put ourselves into the shoes of the foster child, right? Now, almost all of the children in foster care have been removed from their home for one reason or another. Most of them have been abused or neglected or abandoned altogether. Some... So a big part of the training is to try to get us to think about what it would be like to be a child in our foster care system, being tossed from home to home, never feeling a sense of permanence. Now, don't get me wrong. There is value in these exercises. There is, we need to put ourselves into the place of foster children. We need to to try to think about what it would be like to not know where your next meal is going to come from or to not know who you're going to be living with tomorrow. We need to do that. There's value there. But that can only take us so far, right? If you've never experienced that, which I never have, pretending it can only give me a measure of recognition of what that might feel like. I can only understand a fraction of what those kids have been through unless, unless I understand my own hopeless condition apart from Christ. Because you see, apart from Christ, we are all orphans. I mean, isn't that what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I'm about to leave you. I'm about to die, but don't worry. I will not leave you as orphans. 
He uses that word for a reason. He knows what the disciples are about to feel. And he knows what it feels like to be, and we know what it feels like to be an orphan too, if we remember who we were before coming to Christ. We don't have to put ourselves in the shoes of the orphan because at one point in our lives, we were all orphans. Don't you remember? And if you don't believe that, you haven't thought much about your life before your adoption into God's family. I think about my own life. Oh, Caleb, don't you remember what it was like in junior high, in high school, when you lived in constant fear and anxiety about what other people thought of you? Don't you remember the drastic steps you took, the stupid decisions you made, the hurtful things you said so that others would think that you were cool? Don't you remember how your heart and your mind was filled with lust and covetousness? Don't you remember how small, momentary pleasures used to rule your thoughts and going without those things for one day seemed impossible? Don't you remember how disrespectful you were to your parents and your teachers and how you rejected their advice and their authority and tried to carve out your own way because you thought you knew better? Don't you remember how that kind of thinking led to addiction and guilt and despair? Don't you remember how lost you felt, how desolate you were, how helpless and scared you were? Remember that? You see, I don't have to make that stuff up. I don't have to pretend like that happened because it did happen. That was me. I had wonderful parents, wonderful parents, but I was an orphan. I was hopeless, helpless, and without Christ. And so were you. Some of you, perhaps, still are. But Jesus promised the disciples, and he promises us that he will not leave us as orphans. He will come to us. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that he will come to them? To get an answer, we have to read on. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. You see, Jesus is about to die, and when he dies, the world won't see him anymore. That's common sense. But after he is raised, his disciples will see him. He's going to show himself to the disciples. He's going to eat with them and talk with them and walk with them. And then he's going to ascend to the Father in their presence. He is telling them this beforehand to prepare them for it. Verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So here again, Jesus is using this unity language. He's saying that after his resurrection, you will finally believe all these things I'm telling you. And when you finally believe my words, you will be in me and I will be in you. And then, by implication, you will be in my Father. And then in verse 21, Jesus completes the thought. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Did you hear the promise of Christ in that verse? 
Those that love Christ will be loved by the Father. The reason Jesus promises not to leave the disciples as orphans is because he knows he's coming back for them. And when he's raised from the dead, he makes himself known to them. He knows they will believe in him. And when they believe in him, they will be united to him and be where he is with the Father. You see, the fulfillment of the promise is adoption. The reason Jesus can say, I will not leave you as as orphans, is because they will be adopted. His father will be their father. The love that the father has for Christ will be theirs. The inheritance that belongs to Christ will become their inheritance. The spirit that belongs to Christ will belong to them. So what does it mean for Jesus to come back to his disciples? It means that because of the resurrection, the work of Christ is finished. And atonement for his people is complete. And those whom God has predestined for adoption, Ephesians 1, will finally have a father. The Apostle Paul, echoing this truth in Romans 8, writes this. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. Maybe like me, you had great godly parents who cared for you and nurtured you and provided everything you needed. And if so, thank God this morning for that. Thank God that you had parents who provided for you, who didn't hit you or neglect you. I love my mom and dad more today than I ever have. But perhaps some of you come from homes that were broken. Maybe some of you have experienced abuse and neglect. Maybe some of you have been hiding the scars of those experiences for years, afraid to let anyone into your past. Maybe you're ashamed. Maybe you feel responsible for what has happened to you. Maybe you have felt like an orphan your entire life. Hear Christ saying to you this morning, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Even though you may have been hurt or abandoned by your earthly father or mother, you have a true Father in heaven who is calling out to you today to come to him, to lay down the guilt and burdens of your past and flee to the one who is able to make you whole to bring healing and restoration to your soul. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Christ today. He will never leave you. So what does this mean for how we are to think and care about orphans? 
What does John 14, 18 mean for orphan care in our local church? Does it mean anything? I think it does. First, I long to see our church embrace orphan care, not as a ministry program, but as an established culture. Do you see the difference there? We don't want orphan care to become a program that we do. We want it to be a culture, a, a movement, a passion that we all share and that we all participate in as a church. My desire is that we would be a church dedicated to caring for orphans in our own community and around the world. This should not be an add-on to all the other things we do. It should flow naturally out of our love for the gospel and the love for those who don't know Christ. Where there is no love for the gospel, there can be no great movement of love for the orphan. A church who does not care about the gospel will not care about caring for orphans. So if we're going to care for orphans, we have to first get the gospel right. The gospel must take hold of our lives because the gospel is the impetus. It is the, the, the truth that drives caring for those who don't deserve any care because we have been cared for and we don't deserve it. We must remind ourselves daily that we were all once orphans. We were helpless and comfortless. We were the smelly, dirty, unwanted refuse of the enemy. And in fact, we hated God. But God in his loving kindness predestined us for adoption. He sent Christ to make atonement for our sin. Then Christ was raised from the dead so that we might live with him. We are now united to Christ and adopted into our father's family by faith. If those truths don't drive us to care for orphans, I don't know what will. A church that cares for orphans must first care about the gospel. So first, I want to see our church embrace orphan care as a gospel ministry, not as a program ministry. Second, I want us to pray regularly, regularly for orphans all over the world. And there's all kinds of resources out there. In fact, I have one in my backpack that I forgot to grab. Um, just a little prayer guide for orphans, how to pray for orphans daily. Great resource. Um, I want us to, to be talking about how we can pray for orphans in our community and around the world. Third, I want us to take bold risks with our lives for the sake of orphans. Bold risks. Now, I don't know what this means for you. This doesn't mean that God is calling everybody here to adopt internationally or adopt through... Um, the foster care system, or to foster children. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe it means God is calling you and your spouse to adopt. Maybe it means that God is calling you to foster children. Maybe it means God is calling you to get a job, to make as much money as you possibly can so that you can give as much money as you possibly can to caring for orphans, building orphanages, supporting uh, families who want to adopt, giving to ministries that support orphans. I don't know. But I do know that caring for orphans costs a lot of money. 
Maybe it means God is calling, to, calling you to help someone else adopt. And Kelly and I have been so blessed by many of you who have watched our kids for us as we go to these foster care classes on Saturdays. It seems like a very kind of small thing to do. But man, it is a huge blessing we're thankful, man. Thank you, Jamie and Joe and Chet and Phyllis and Quinn and Sadie, man. You, all you guys, and if I've forgotten anybody else, I'm sorry. Um, but, man, you've just been a huge blessing to us in watching our kids. And that is just another way that we can serve families who want to adopt to care for orphans. Maybe it means that God is calling you to start a more formal ministry that reaches out to orphans or single mothers or pregnant teens. I don't know. We're going to hear about one of these ministries later on in a little bit. I don't know what God is calling you to do. But I do know that God has called every one of us to be involved in caring for orphans. To be involved in caring for those without fathers and mothers. Those who are helpless and desolate and comfortless. If we don't care about the gospel, it will be very hard for us to care about the orphan. So this morning, I hope that we, that we saw from John 14 that Jesus was a father to his disciples. He uses the word orphan for a specific reason, because he knows he's about to leave them, but he's going to come back to them. And the end result of Jesus coming back is that they are adopted into the Father's family. Now let's commit this morning to caring for children the way our Heavenly Father cares for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that um, we have been adopted, Father, that we have been given a family, that we who were once comfortless and helpless and desolate we now have access to the Father. We are united with Christ by faith. And God, we, we worship and adore you this morning because of, of what you have done in our lives. And God, we, we ask that you would give us creativity, that you would give us just new and exciting ways, God, to, to care for orphans, to care for children, those in our midst who are in the most need. God, we love you. Help us to be faithful in this, in this task. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.